Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I'm the Reverend Hunter, joined as always by the Huck Finn to my Tom Sawyer, Brandon. It's happening, Tony. That reference I know a little about because I was supposed to read that book in school, but I didn't read that book in school. <laughs> oh, look, man. I asked my son, who just finished his junior year, about halfway through the year, I'm like, how are you getting an A in English? I never see you read a book. He's like, Dad, everything I need to know to write the papers is online already. I don't need to actually read the book. I was thought, oh, this is the... That's how kids learn these days. We've got oh, Wikipedia. Dude. It's so <laughs> tragic. It's so tragic. Well, I just thought that, uh, you know, Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, you just think of those guys with their, uh, you know, their cut-off blue jeans, shirtless... Uh, you know, floating on a raft down the Mississippi. It's just a kind of a summertime vision. Yeah, and it's exactly what I want to be doing this summer, to be honest. <laughs> well, dude, I mean, talk about jumping in a lake or a river. Uh, supposedly, we're looking at like the next 25 days in the 90s or something. Like, it's supposed to be, we're supposed to get this crazy heat dome. Fingers crossed it doesn't happen, but that's bumming me out. Awesome. My uh, my lawn is going to love it. This is going to be fun. I'm going to have another summer without having to mow again. Dude, let I can't even. I Don't even get me started on how ridiculous lawns are. You water them, and then you cut them. It's, all they do is cost you money. I hate it. I, well, I, I heard no. somebody say that we spend a ridiculous amount of money on a plant we can't eat, and that's our <laughs> Yeah, you're right. We should. I know. Speaking of plants we can eat, man, my garden, though, the, the nice thing about the heat is my garden is just blowing up. It's it's uh, it's hard to even walk around and there's so much going on. So you got to come over here and get some green beans sometime or something like that. Oh, heck yeah. Get some green beans and then get my uh, extension cord thing back or whatever. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Well, I've been out. Uh, I've been People who follow me on Instagram have probably noticed this once in a while, but uh, I've been out and about around small town Minnesota because I umpire amateur baseball in Minnesota, which um, around here it's actually called town ball. So you might, you grew up in a small town Minnesota. Did you guys have a town ball team? Uh, we didn't have one until I moved out, but now they have the Wilmer Stingers, which is oh yeah. nice, yeah, yeah. And they have a pretty nice stadium there too, so that's pretty cool. Well, these these I was in Northfield uh, last night. I'm going to Watertown, Minnesota tonight. Uh, you know, a lot of these towns, their their baseball field is their pride and joy, truly. Oh, uh, absolutely! It, I bring it. There's a little town south of Northfield called uh, Dundas. And I don't know, 1,800 people live in this town, but their baseball stadium is fantastic. They're actually one of the hosts of the amateur state tournament this year. Uh, yeah, man. Er, most of these towns I go to, it's just amazing the way that everybody pitches in to keep this ball field going. It's uh, some of these parks sell $2, $2 beers. Oh, that's <laughs> so, great. So the crowd gets real into it as the game goes on. How many, how many Hey Blue yells are you hearing? Oh, there's a lot of Hey Blue. <laughs> there was one place. Where did I go? It was $2 beers or like, I can't remember, uh, 15 bucks for a case. Dude. They just sell you a case of beer at the in the concession stand. That's, that's just as cheap as I could buy it at the store. 
and then great. pork chop. They got pork chops on a stick, and they burgers, and you know the brats, and the whole deal. It's man, there's nothing like it. I think I, you've inspired me to go uh, check out some some town ball this summer. That actually sounds like something fun to do on a 90 degree day. Honestly, I would strongly encourage it. I'll be uh, umping in Red Wing on Sunday. There's, I think it's a 2 p.m. game on Sunday. Those Sunday afternoon games are always fun because huge crowds and, uh, yeah, nothing, right. n- nothing like sitting in the bleachers drinking a two dollar beer and watching some college kids play baseball. I a, mean, it, it's in a wood bat league too. So. Oh, it's a wood bat league. That's even better. Oh yeah, man, absolutely. That's it's really a ton cool. of fun. Well, uh, we had a great conversation. You listened in and you were. Uh, turning the knobs and making us sound good uh, with Wes. T- see, he, I knew it. I knew I'd stumble over his last name. Tell ya, tell ya, right? Isn't that what he told me before we started recording? I tell you what, you're correct. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. <laughs> I've known Wes through like the, the internet tubes and we've talked on the phone a few times. Um, he is, he is a pastor, but he he used to be a full-time pastor and he tells the story in our conversation and it's pretty fascinating but it, it, you know if you're if you're not in the church world it might surprise you about how dysfunctional churches are but if you're in the church world or have any uh uh understanding of that it probably won't surprise you Wes's experience of being a senior pastor in his 30s um and ended up leaving the ministry and really struggling with depression. But you know what? He's turned the corner on that stuff. He started his own uh, handmade fly rod company, which is Snow Snow Qualmy. There we go. I stumbled over that one too. Snow Qualmy Rod Company, named after the river on which he lives uh, in central Washington. The link to his rod co is in the show notes i would really encourage you to check it out they're beautiful handmade rods and he's back in the church as a part-time pastor so um you know he was able to redeem that uh, painful experience and uh circle back into a church that's a good fit for him and we had a fantastic conversation just a, a wonderful guy and the very kind of the spirit of the Reverend Hunter podcast that I'm looking for. And that's somebody who is, uh, you know, a deeply spiritual person who loves the outdoors and brings those parts of his life together. And the openness of, of him being able to talk about things from the past to me was, was really cool. Cause you know, it's, it's a hard thing to talk about, you know, depression or even the reasons for leaving a church that you're a pastor yeah. of, but it was really insightful conversation. Yeah, it was cool. I think everybody, I think you'll love it. Really appreciate you listening as always. Uh, we would love, you know, if you want a sponsor, I know we got a sponsor coming up next month, Brandon. We got, I actually have a sponsor coming in the fall. Yes, so there's, do. there's a tease. There's a tease um, for all the listeners out there. But if you'd like to sponsor, please get in touch with me. But mainly, thanks for listening. Uh, you can subscribe in whatever app you use to listen to podcasts. You can give us a a happy thumbs up rating or five stars or whatever it is in your app. And, uh, you know, feel free to tweet about the episode if you like it and let other people know about it. Thanks for listening to the Reverend Hunter podcast. Here's my conversation with 
Wes Talia, the founder of the Snoqualmie Rod Company and part-time pastor. Hey, Wes, thanks for coming on the Reverend Hunter podcast, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's funny because you wrote me initially to pitch somebody else. <laughs> yeah, and I did. And I ended up asking you. I mean, I think I'll ask him eventually, but yeah, I yeah. asked you no, first. So I, that's I, just a tip to listeners out there, you know, nominate other people and maybe you'll get on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was my the sole purpose, clearly. <laughs> so... Yeah. So, no, man, where, we, where do we find you today? We are you in North Bend, Washington, which is not anywhere close to Bend, Oregon. No, we're, it's about six hours away from Bend, Oregon. Um, but yeah, I'm in. Uh, well, technically, Snoqualmie, but it's like two small towns next to each other. And then I live out in the middle of nowhere, so it's like rural, small town, uh-huh. Western Washington. Yeah. And man, you've just got a super interesting journey and I look forward to hearing all about it. Um, but tell me, um, first of all, just tell me what it's like there, where you're out, like situate us, get, give our listeners kind of a, a, a visual sense of what that part of the world is like. Yeah. So we're, I'm right next to the Cascade mountain ranges. So I go, you know, like 20 miles east and I'm at the, I'm going through the pass between Eastern Washington and Western Washington. Um, but we're also about 20, 25 miles away from downtown Seattle. So it's oh. kind of a, it's a, it's an interesting area because, um, in a lot of ways, like Western Washington is a very blue area yep. and Eastern Washington is very red. And then you get to kind of like the area I'm in, which is, um, uh, kind of an old Washington, um, Folks have been here for a while, but because of housing prices closer in, say if you go in even another 10 miles, 15 miles into Issaquah and Bellevue, houses are uh, a lot more expensive than they even are out here. And and so you've had a lot of folks move further and further away from Seattle, move further away from Bellevue uh, for housing reasons, right? And so you have a lot of folks who've been here for a long time, and then you have you know all the tech money, which has brought folks to buy houses out here. And then, um, as people have moved out here, um, they, you know, they've cleared land for houses. And so like, I usually have elk in my yard every day. Um, I, I mean, I had a deer walk within like five yards of where I was working last night. Um, we had a cougar in the neighborhood, uh, about a week ago. So there's all this wildlife and then there's still, we're, we're not that far from Seattle. So it's, it's a diverse area in terms of uh, the demographics, um, but also in terms of like being right on the edge of nothing. Like my, our house and our neighbor's house bumps up to about a hundred thousand acres of private forest behind us. Oh my goodness. So private forest owned by what, like a logging, like a paper company, logging company. Yeah. It was old warehouser land that got yeah. bought out by another company and they sell um, passes. So you can go up there and hunt and fish and you can also, uh, uh, cut wood while you're up there. They mm-hmm, let you mm-hmm. take so much wood. So, um, it, private just cause they only, you know, they only sell so many, but yeah, yeah. it was, it used to be an old logging area. I'm just going to say, I know this is driving my producer, Brandon crazy, yeah. but I <laughs> love the squeaky old chair. Okay. Oh, so, shoot. no, no, right. no, don't, no, don't apologize. <laughs> I love it. I love the squeaky old chair. I like it. Oh my goodness. Come I didn't on, even bro. think of that. 
No, no. <laughs> it, it, it adds texture to this whole, like we can see you in a squeaky old chair on a, on, on the Western edge of the Cascades by a, you know, oh, a, trout, goodness, yeah. a trout stream. And, but yeah. man, you're then, that means you're right on the edge of, I mean, if you got wildlife like that, yeah. And then if you've got wildlife like that, but then you've got civilization pushing hard from Seattle. Oh yeah. I mean, there's going to be, it's, it, there's going to be a reckoning in the next 10 years. You, this It's going to be really interesting. I, I mean, one of the things that uh, was really telling was uh, in the midst of COVID while we had these mass mandates and we had them in Washington for a long time. I think we were some of the first to come into some of the re- restrictions, if we call them restrictions, and uh, some of the last to come out of a lot of them. But in our town, as soon as they were lifted, it was like no one wore a mask. But you'd go 10 miles in to Issaquah, and I bet you, I don't know, at least 50% of the people, if not more, were still wearing masks, even after these restrictions had been let up. And it was just really telling about kind of the um, political climate over just a couple of miles. Um, and and then, you, you know, all the other things that are compounded on top of that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how this area changes in the next 10 years. You know, my brother lives in Bend, Oregon. We've talked about that before, emailed about yeah. it or whatever, and, uh, or talked on the phone about it. Um, yeah, the number of people from California who fled and my brother, my brother's like, <laughs> they didn't just bring their money. They brought their politics, which is tells you, <laughs> but Bend is another one of those interesting oh, yeah. places because there's people who've lived in Bend and Redmond, Oregon for generations. Yeah. And it's funny, my brother, he moved there after he finished his medical residency in Portland. So he's been in Bend for like 25 years, but he yep. now feels like a native. And he's like <laughs> giving the finger to every California license plate he sees that are clogging up these roundabouts that were not built for the number of people who currently live in Bend. No. Well, and you know, it's, it's, so it's funny because, I mean, I grew up in Oregon, right? And I think it was Tom McCall, who was the governor at the time, who put up a sign on the Oregon-California border that said, like, welcome, come, and visit, and then leave. <laughs> and, it, like, it spelled it out. And, like, I mean, Ben's a prime example of, like, yeah. I mean, I still have my parents, and, or I shouldn't say my parents, but I know folks uh, who still call it, like, Little California because everyone went straight from California right to Ben because you don't want to go to Portland. It's wet and cold. But you can go to Bend, and then there's skiing, and then there's all these other things that you can do on top of right. The so they're the east of the Cascades, but you're west of the Cascades. So your climate must be a little more cloudy, a little more humid, not oh. so much the high desert. No, we no we. Uh, I mean, we're getting fifty plus inches of rain a year. I mean, I mean, we <laughs> today is like miserably hot, and I'm complaining, and it's like maybe eighty two degrees. Jeez, oh, come on, bro. <laughs> Um, but we, we don't get it that much. I mean, last yeah. summer we got up to 115, which was unreal. Oof. Um, and it never had gotten that high, but no, for the most part, a lot of rain, really green summers and less last couple, a lot of smoke coming in from Canada. And back I was going to say to you guys, does that, you know, east of the Cascades and then you head east from there, 
into oh. Idaho and stuff, the wildfires are crazy year after year. Are you protected from that a bit? Um, no, there's a couple of things going on in like my immediate area where we live. One, there's um, the forest behind us has an uh, issue with some beetles that have killed a lot of, it is killing a lot of the pine trees that are drying up. So a few years ago, there was a, a fire out of North Bend that was started by, um, I think it was like a ricochet from a bullet that sparked a fire. And so that could have been an issue. But a lot of the timber here is starting to, to die if they don't get this beetle situation hmm. um, under a bit more control. And you, and you can see it as you drive around just these dead pine trees and stuff. Um, but, uh, the smoke has been awful. I mean, there, there were days in the last couple of summers where the, the air index was in the three and four hundreds, um, for the air quality. And I'll, I'll send you some photos of my in-laws are on the East side of the state. And, um, last year, two years ago, uh, my son and I, and my father-in-law were fishing, um, on the Columbia out of Manson. And, um, we got done, we came home, and then uh, that night, no, the very next day, uh, fire started. I forget what was the cause. It jumped the Columbia. And, I mean, we're like an hour away drive from it. But they were worried that the fire was moving so quick. Hmm. Kind of, it would have been westbound at that point or southwest mm-hmm. that it could have gotten into town. And it got so dark that when we went to try and leave at 10 a.m., it, it looked as though it was nighttime. Dude. Like it was, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was a bit scary, but, um, so we, we deal with them in different ways on each side of the state, but I, we were certainly not immune to them. I'm going to jump ahead and ask yeah. you a question related to that. And we're going to circle back and get more of your story, but you're part of a pretty conservative version of Christianity the in the CMA. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Well, and see, and, and, and I guess this would get back more to my, this, I guess my story. Yes. I would say the CNMA is in the same way though. I would say when we look at nuances within denominations, there's a wide range uh, within it. I would say probably 90% of the CNMA is, is a uh, pretty conservative. I, I don't want to call them theological conservatives because in a lot of ways their theology isn't necessarily conservative. That's another nuanced thing, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. um, I mean, it, you take how they read scripture. I would say that I, I look at someone like Luther or some of those other traditions that have spurred, uh, say part of like the, the, the 20th century and liberal theology. Like some of that came from, from Luther's own thought. Um, but, uh, it's that would be conservative uh, in some regards in a way that the CNMA isn't. So, okay. So the reason I want to get to that and, and that for, for listeners, that's the Christian and missionary Alliance. And we'll get yeah. back to that and how you got there. But <laughs> I know, you know, you've done ministry. So my, my, I would say um, in general, yeah. And you already kind of tipped your, had to this a little bit. It's not even so much. It, it's culturally conservative. It's probably if, if you were to pull a lot of people who are part of that denomination, very politically conservative right now. I, I'm I'm asking about this. Yeah, I'm asking this. Wildfires in the West, <laughs> unprecedented wildfires. Yeah, the people in in that iteration of Christianity. 
How do they respond to that? Do they say, well, man, the climate is changing. We need to do something about this. Or what, what do you hear in your circles about that? Um, by and large, in the church I currently serve, I hear we need to relook at logging practices. We need to look at what we're doing to cause these fires, whether mm. it's climate change issues, whether, but I think that's a West coast thing. I mean, didn't I mean, Trump say we should just rake the under understory? We should rake more. And then <laughs> did it, I don't, I did. you don't remember I, I that did. Trump no, said well, we should I, rake I, more I, and there'll be, be less wildfires. And if any of <laughs> My parishioners hear this, like, I, I, I'll tip my hat here. Like, I, I mean, I tried not to listen when that guy talked <laughs> too much. <laughs> yeah. Like, it was I know, just, yeah, at I know, times but it was that was much. one of those deals of like, we should just get out there and rake in the, yeah. I'm like, that's somebody who has no idea about the, um, the acres of public land in the West. Yeah. No. Oh, and, yeah. And I think somebody who spent his whole life on the East Coast, you have no, you, you just have no conception. Like you just said, oh yeah, hundred thousand acres of private warehouser land, yeah. like uh, out your back door. That's yep. unheard of on the East Coast. Yeah. It, well, and you know, and and you're making a, an interesting point because, um, I mean, I remember a, a pastor friend of mine came from the East Coast and um, talked about you know a, a lot about the long. Uh, tradition of the churches she came from and and how how they've been around for hundreds of years and stuff and i remember sitting there and it was the first moment that i realized like i'm not in kansas anymore because i sat there and thought about my grandmother who told me stories about indians coming off the frontier in helena montana Mm. and i was like when you the the difference between the east coast and the west coast is you do have a building that's hundreds of years old out here. Something that's hundreds of years old might be a homestead, but even then, I mean, 150 years at the most. Yeah, like stuff that old is going to be old Indian camps and and stuff like that. That's amazing. And so, I'm, I mean, I'm glad to hear that the people you're ministering to are starting to say, like, what we're playing a role in this. Yeah. Um. Well, and, 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 you know, I think they would say, um, we're playing a role in it, but who has to fix it and how they go about fixing it or what we do to rectify it is where some of the politics would really start to come out. Oh yeah. Well, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll get back to that. I just want a little shout out to Warehouser because you and I each, uh, hold a degree from Fuller Seminary. Yep. And the Warehouser family has been a huge benefactor to Fuller Seminary. Oh. I didn't know I didn't if know you that. knew that, but uh-huh, no. over the years, the Warehousers gave a lot of money to Fuller. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. So, oh, fascinating. So, thanks, Warehousers, for yeah. your support <laughs> of our degrees. Yeah. Uh, so, well, let's hold on. We might, we might be able to change their mind. <laughs> You're, uh, how'd you get from there to here, I mean, I'll stop you along the way and ask you questions, but, um, yeah, you didn't grow up in the Christian missionary Alliance and, oh, and no. I don't know if you grew up fly fishing. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I got into the Christian missionary Alliance by almost by accident. And, 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 you know, I think it's worth noting for the most part, you start in a conservative denomination and you go to a more liberal one. 
And like my trajectory is <laughs> ass backwards in that regard because I did the opposite. But I grew up in the evangelical Lutheran church in America. I grew up in a church that was on the, like the bleeding edge progressive side of it. And, um, went to Pacific Lutheran university and then seminary at Pacific Lutheran theological seminary and got in the parish ministry. And I think part of what the seminary experience did for me was tame some of the more, um, radical parts of what I had, um, grown up thinking. I mean, it's amazing when you learn languages, how, how they really make you critically look at a text and you can sit back and say, I know what you're trying to do, but that's not what the language says. We have to use a different, we have to think our way through this. We just can't gross over the the thinking parts of it. But, um, I, I essentially got to a point where I was in a call, I was lead pastor and, um, how old, how old are you at the time when you're a lead pastor in a Lutheran congregation? Oh, let's see. I was, okay, I've been out for, he's doing I'm math on the 30s. fly. <laughs> okay. I, I was like 31, okay. something like that. Uh-huh. I guess, I mean, I'm 38 now, 30, something like, I was right in there. Okay. Yeah. I mean, That's... this is a West Coast congregation. It's not as though it's a huge Midwest Lutheran congregation we we should set expectations these are nothing on the west coast is anything compared to what's in like st paul um or st louis or you know uh, chicago in terms of size but um i mean it was a there was a staff there and the you know all that um and it was a church that desired um some sort of turnaround right uh their previous pastor had been there for like basically, every, like basically every mainline church in the country. Exactly. Yeah. You know, why aren't, where's it's like where change or die at this point? Yeah. <laughs> and, and you know, the crazy thing is I got there, they had a $30,000 deficit within the first year. We had a $20,000, uh, we were in the black by 20 grand, uh, worship attendance had, um, had increased from like, I don't know, probably like 125 to 100, 125. And we're at like 200, maybe just a touch over 200. And, and essentially what happened at that moment was I think um, they realized with more people there, you lost uh, the intimacy of a small church. Oh. Um, when you have that many people in, in so worship. So they want the church to be vibrant and in the black, but yeah. they don't want new people coming because it, no. it, it busts up their little family reunion. Well, well, I mean, they want new people to come and sit in the pews and be quiet and then be told what to do. Mm. Right. It's, it's not new people aren't the problem. It's when new people start to be people get up and, and behave <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah, right. want to volunteer or something. And I'm I, <laughs> anyways, uh-huh. I mean, it got to the point where, um, I mean, I was getting notes in the offering plate, get your kids the hell out of worship. Cause it was your kids, your own personal my kids, children, my own personal kids. I still have the note. I've kept the note because oh, I mean, <laughs> because that's the healthy thing to do is to hold on to something. Um, <laughs> it reminds but, you why uh, you left that congregation. I mean, it, well, but, and you know what it does for multiple reasons. One, because I got it and it got put in the offering plate. And so that particular Sunday, their offering was wow. hate mail to two kids who were under five. Because One they were kid too who squirmy was or something? Under three. Because they made noise. And here's the thing. 
That noise is an easy one to deal with. The beeping oxygen tank or the cane <laughs> that continually falls down that can totally be controlled. Uh, that one? Or the squealing. I always like the, the squealing, um, the high-pitch hearing aids that are like turned <laughs> up so too loud that, yes. that everybody can hear it. Uh, squealing except for the guy who's got it in his ears, you know? Exactly. And <laughs> and I should be clear, like, all these sounds, none of them bother me one bit. Yeah. yeah. But, like, if we're going to complain about noises, I, I, I mean, we need to level set in terms of... Right. Your issue is someone is, be, is, is growing in the faith by being in the pews and seeing other people worship. Like, you know, whether they can vocalize it or cognitively understand it is beyond the point. The fact is that that someone cares enough to be there, but um, no. And I I'm, used so, to, I yeah. when, when I when at the heyday of the emerging church movement, when I was going around the country talking about change in church, I used to talk about people like that, and I'd say like, "Look, they're not driving the same car they drove in 1975. They don't have the same hairdo that they did in 19. They're not wearing the same eyeglasses frames. Like they've yeah. updated everything else in their lives." But they want the church to be that like that one thing that never changes. Yeah, you know they've got a new TV. Everything in their lives has changed since 1975. But they don't want this one thing to change. And it's funny because a lot of pastors would hear me say that, be like, "Yeah, but I've no like, what do you do? Like, there's, it's it's virtually impossible to convince these people that." the church needs to change in the same way that everything else in their lives has changed. And the people who do believe that have already left for evangelical churches where the pastor wears khaki pants and a Hawaiian shirt, you know, yeah, and has video, uh, like video clips in his sermon or whatever. They've already left. Well, and I mean, and then what does it say about your, your understanding about the word and whether it's relevant or whether it speaks into someone's life. Like I, I think of someone like Carl Bart and stuff and, and essentially like if nothing changes and we have to hold, then someone like Bart is, 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 is the epitome of insanity. Yeah. And, and yet his stuff is incredibly poignant. Um, anyway, so, um, so yeah, so that note was like one marker, but also I remember taking it to my council and, and not in a, I'm going to tell on you guys, but we've been going through cultural change stuff. We've been thinking about the culture we're creating. And I said, here's our marker. This is what rock bottom looks like. Like physically, this is what rock bottom looks like. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget someone said, well, your kids are kind of loud. Maybe they oh, could go somewhere else. Oh my gosh, and I, I remember going, I remember sitting there going, seriously? And he just he wouldn't drop it. And I was like, all right. And then, um, Oh, what was it? Uh, I mean, I had, there were other things that happened. I mean, one of the funny things, it's not funny. My uh, six month old at the time, uh, was sitting with my wife and my wife picked him up and she was, you know, wearing like, I don't know, jeans and a sweater or whatever. And I had someone complain to me that they saw the small of her back when they, Ooh. when she picked up our son Scandalous, and I was told, Wes. I know I, I was told, you know, what kind of women like to show off the smallest of their back. Oh my gosh. And I was like, that is the politest way someone has ever told me what my wife's a whore. Oh and God. I was like, this is it's anyways, I just, I couldn't take it anymore. Like I had to do there's, I mean, I had to, um, 
help oversee the process of the organist have been there 57 years. And what? How old yeah, was the organist? What well, ironically enough, he was just about, yeah. I mean, he had been he played the very first service of this Holy church. Smokes. But he couldn't play anymore, and there were some other home issues with him. And so I eventually I essentially had to convince him to it was time to hang it up. And so I I did that. Um but throughout this whole thing, I just it got to the point where I thought where I knew if I didn't leave, if I stuck around, I was essentially making the choice that my my kids wouldn't even have the opportunity to choose whether or not they wanted to follow in the faith. Um, yeah. And it was like, all right, well, I mean, I'm not what my kids choose to do with their faith is theirs. I have my opinion. And if they don't agree with me, I, they should be ready to argue about it. But like, I don't need to force them to, uh, or push them out or allow that sort of situation. So I, I just resigned. Um, how they take it? How they take it when you resign? Oh, they, they were shocked. I mean, they had never, I mean, they had never had a, um, they had had two other pastor spouses who had worked, but never another pastor spouse who was pretty much the breadwinner. Um, because maybe not everyone knows you don't get rich doing ministry at all. Um, <laughs> this is breaking news on the Reverend Hunter <laughs> podcast. And you know, cost of living in Seattle is not low. So my right. wife works full time and, um, and I am so grateful for that. And the church is very grateful that, for that too. Um, because it's afforded us a lot, um, of opportunities and flexibility, but, uh, so they had never been in a, I mean, every single pastor they had before me either lived in a parsonage or took a significant loan from the church to get a house. Right. Right. And so now they have a pastor who's saying, I'm not going to be put up with, I'm not going to be treated this way. And, and then when they kept going said, all right, I'm out of here. Oh, they were mad. They were upset. They didn't see it coming. And I remember sitting, the Bishop had to come in and, and I remember sitting in this meeting with the Bishop and, uh, they said, well, we need to talk to someone who can help us understand the the cultural situation that we're in and how we might think through structuring the church to engage this this situation. Is there anyone who you know who could help us? And I am so grateful. Kirby Untai was the bishop, and he looked at them and he said, "Well, the only person I know who who has recently done major research on it is your pastor." I talked to him before he leaves. Wow. It was That's solid. It was, it was one of the most gratifying things. So anyways, <laughs> that's how I left. So how old were you then when you're leaving the, that ELCA church? Let's see, uh 35. So you stayed there about 5 years or so? Yeah. And three, then I, I think it was yeah, yeah. Did you did, when you quit, did you have something else waiting in the wings or was it just like you pulled the ripcord? <laughs> no, I pulled the ripcord. I was doing some executive coaching. I dove more into that. Okay. Um, and this was August of 2019, um, December of 2020, I got diagnosed with severe clinical depression, uh, mm. surprise, surprise. Um, and then how did that, how happens. was that? How was it? it mean, uh, answer only as much as you want to, but like, how was that manifesting itself in your life? Cause I'm, I'm sure there are people listening who've struggled with that as well. Oh yeah. I mean, so this is, I mean, 2019, 2018, um, I had just finished up at Fuller and so I like, I, I was kind of plugged into the, like, this is your doctorate. Your doctorate. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 
uh, as I, I've kind of plugged into the evangelical, I don't know, subculture, or whatever. Anyways, I think it was like 2016 to 2018. Uh, like there are three prominent young evangelical pastors my age who killed themselves. Oh. And I think it was in 2018 was the last one. And I remember hearing about it, seeing something about it. And I remember saying, oh, that makes sense. As Ooh. though that was a logical response. Right. Scary. And, and, and I think that was the moment where I was like, oh, no. I mean, there's two moments. Um, the other was when I had this, uh, this experience of uh, Christmas Eve and I was presiding at communion. And I just felt this, uh, this urge in me. And it just kind of said, you won't be here in a year. And lo and behold, a year later, I wasn't. But um, I remember, you know, thinking that's not a logical response to a suicide. And um, right. and I was, and I remember thinking it took it still took me a while longer to reach out and get help. But um, you know, that was that was the impetus, and then I could, you know, train I me. Mean, depression is biological. It you know. once you see it, you can see it in your past, all those sorts of things. But I've been able to do the work to say, all right, I can actually see how ministry affected its manifestation. And and that's mine to own. I'm not going to own this. I've served other other parishes that were phenomenal and loving, and and I'm so grateful for them. Mm -hmm. But I can't own others' bad behavior. I can own not... Uh, knowing what those triggers were and then not being aware enough and mature enough to keep healthy in the midst of it. So, yeah. um, Yeah. So anyways, but you know, COVID was awesome because a, I'm an introvert and B like, you know, that's not something you want to go through in public. So when everyone's locked in, (laughs) I got to sort through all that by myself, which was awesome. Um, And I'm really grateful uh, for that. So, so yeah, so I was doing the coaching and then, uh, it would have been about September of 2020. I was working with a number of nonprofits, but that space just completely dried up because during September is, yeah, yeah, that's when nonprofits do a lot of their fundraising. And when it mm-hmm. didn't come in, that's when I felt, or my partner and I felt that. And, um, so, and I slowly went, then I, anyway, I found my way into the, our, the local church in our area that does a wonderful job with, uh, meeting needs in the community, serving others, that sort of thing, was the CNMA church. Ironically enough, my doctoral advisor, a guy by the name of David Fitch out of Northern Seminary, um, was a CNMA guy. And 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 a big fan of McDonald's. (laughs) Very much. Although, (laughs) I mean, in in years, once the CNMA said, all right, your pastors can now drink alcohol, he started going to a, a dive bar. Oh, Mount no kidding? Chicago. Yeah, and started doing his uh, coffee or whatever, you know, his beer there. Because um, I remember after a couple of seminars, we just go get drinks after class. And it was like the first class seminar I took with him, there was no drinking. The second one, we were all going out for drinks after class. Um, or the, the few of us who drank yeah. did and being a Lutheran, that was never an issue. So, right, right. So, anyways, that's how we. I found my, myself there, and then they right. went through some transition. I was helping them with that, and I eventually then went, um, came on staff part time, and, and nice. so. And you're still doing that part time. Yeah, yeah, I'm still doing it part time. I'm, I'm, I'm um, in 
no way do I ever want to be a lead pastor again. But if yeah. I can teach and preach and and engage those things, oh, I I absolutely love that part of it. Yeah. You know, I I was in uh, I went to the store the other day and ran into a parishioner who's going through a hard time. And I love the small town. I love being a pastor, and I love being able to bump into folks like that. Um, and and so this has afforded me the chance to do that. And so, That's um, cool. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I and had the a, kids enjoy it. Yeah, so. I had a gig uh, last year for several months at a church where all I did was teach and preach and had none of the other bullshit that, that comes along with <laughs> church <laughs> oh ministry. My, yes. And it was ideal. Yes, it is. Right. I mean, yeah. there's, there's a certain amount of freedom when you don't, I, I, I'll never, I, I was pulled out of a meeting, an important meeting one time, um, because the family of a deceased person, we we're doing this funeral, wanted paper coffee cups rather than to use the church's mm. fine China at the funeral. And I remember going, I have a fucking doctorate and I am debating <laughs> between China and paper coffee cups what has gone wrong like this is not how i envisioned my life i remember you know what i have a very vivid memory is sitting in a staff meeting i was on a big church staff i think there were five ordained pastors and all sorts of support staff and whatever and we were sitting in a staff meeting you know the and the weekly tuesday morning staff meeting and the church business administrator i think we spent 30 minutes talking about the laminated coffee urn policy because the AA group was not cleaning the urns as per the laminated coffee policy. So what are we going to, and I'm just like, I had thought coming out of seminary, if you get on a big church staff with a bunch of other pastors, you're going to like read books together, talk about theology, like talk about the ethics of pastoral ministry, like give each other preaching tips. No, we were, Talking about the coffee policy and why, and what, how, how are we going to confront the AA group for not cleaning the, the, the huge commercial size urns correctly? I was just like, this is a complete waste of my time. Well, why? Are we doing this? <laughs> yes. And that was one of those like, you like with you, there were several nails in the coffin for me for parish ministry before I left to get my doctorate. But one of them was that staff meeting, and I looked at the senior pastor. And he was just like vacantly staring out the window. And I remember asking him about that later. Like, why don't you say something? Like, get control of this thing. And his response was like, I've been a, minute, I've been a pastor for 30 years. I don't have a dog in that fight. And Tony, you're going to hear, he would use all these metaphors like this. Tony, you're going to realize you've only got six bullets in your six shooter. And you got to decide how to spend those six bullets. I was like, whoa, dude, that is a violent metaphor for pastoral ministry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and it's scary how on point it is, too. Yeah, um, <laughs> unfortunately. And there's right, always I, like, I'm not going to die on that hill. I don't have a dog in that fight. You know, it's all very violent, like oh my militaristic imagery, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good way to put it. My, yeah. Um, well, let's, let's jump to the other side of the, of the railroad tracks of your life and talk to me about fly fishing and listeners know that, um, fly fishing is something I have done a little bit of 
yeah. back, way back from college, but I don't live in really a fly fishing mecca. Although my neighbor across the street fly fishes a ton and he's always telling me, man, it'll change your life once you start fly fishing. You know, it's the same, it's the same way people, guys tell me about bow hunting. Like, yeah. oh, once you shoot a deer or an elk with a bow, you'll never go back to a rifle. You know, it's one of these, it's like, it's more mystical, it's more spiritual or whatever. And so I keep saying to people, I'm like, okay, I've got one more year out with a kid in the house, then I'm an empty nester, and then I'll take up fly fishing. Like, I just can't take on, because it's a hobby that demands a lot. Yeah. I mean, money, yeah. time, commitment. Yeah. So it's, wh- yeah. how did you start? I, I I've read something online from you that like you used to be a terrible angler. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I don't think I caught a fish like till I was like 18, 19. I mean, I was, so you didn't grow up fishing. Well, no, I grew up fishing and even with power bait, I was just that awful. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, you know, my parents had a little cabin on the Oregon coast. They still do. They stocked this lake there and we'd go and fish and, I just never catch anything, even with power bait. Now, of course, <laughs> I, now I look back on it and I realize, like, of course I didn't. The power bait was always floating on the top. I never put the split shot on to get it down. My dad didn't fish a whole lot, and so it's there wasn't a lot of the knowledge. I had a grandfather who fished a ton. Um, family dynamics. I never got a fish with him before he died. I, I knew him well. I uh, was around him all the time. You know, just it's just how it was, and. Um, and so when I got to college, a uh, roommate of mine fly fish, and I was like, well, I've got to learn how to do this because I'd always been curious by it. And then um, we actually, first time we went fly fishing was the middle fork of the Snoqualmie River, which is, I don't know, maybe 10 miles or not even 10, five, six miles from where I live now. I live right off the main stem of the North Fork. And, um, and I was hooked, just the whole casting behind it and the the thought process that goes into thinking through um especially with trout like what are they eating where's their food source how would they ambush it you know what time of day is it what time of year that sort of thing mm-hmm. um and and so i i just got into it and then you know, a couple of years later started tying flies started building rods and um and it's all about 20 years ago and then it just became more and more obsessive and then um it was 2010. I caught my first steelhead and, and I caught it on uh, the Bogashiel out of Forks, Washington with, uh, with a, a guy who's a friend now. My wife grew up with him. His name's uh, Joe Willauer. And um, Joe was a guide and um, my wife introduced me to him. And now he's, I consider him a good friend. Um, but it rained like four inches the night before. And the Bogusha was about the only river on the Olympic Peninsula that was in shape. And we nailed three fish that day, including the last fish that I hooked into ran about a hundred yards down the river. We were at the, we, we were within line sight of the uh, takeout and popped off. And I'll never forget. I, I, I'm sitting there all big eyed and Joe looked at me and he goes, that's the fish that just ruined you. Cause you will always come back. <laughs> to try and get that fish again. And he's absolutely right. Cause steelhead, they're rainbow trout that go to the ocean and then they come back. And unlike salmon, steelhead can spawn and make that trip three or four times. Wow. And so okay. they're, they're big, uh, 
like a trophy size fish or a large mature fish would be like 20 pounds. Mm. We don't get many of them anymore. Um, but they're mean, they're pissed off. They, they fight and run and it's, I mean, you don't get many of them, but the ones you get are, are absolutely incredible. They'll, they'll tow a drift boat around a river. Um, so anyways, I got into that and then I got into really what I like to do the most is swing flies with a two handed rod. And so a lot of fly fishing is done with a one handed rod, which a lot of people have seen, but then there's, um, Scandinavian and Skagit casting, which is Skagit for me. Uh, Skagit, S-K-A-G-I-T, like the Skagit okay. River. Oh, and, that's and, where it comes yeah. from. Okay. Yeah, it actually, yeah. So, Which is where? Sk- Where's that river? Uh, about an hour north of uh, Seattle. Okay, but but this type of two-handed rod is Scandinavian in, in origin? Kind of. So, okay. so two-handed fly rods and spay casting is what they call it, originated on the River Spay over um on the other side of the pond and the 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 fly lines they used for it are called scandy lines and they are very very long lines and so what you have is on a spay reel you have like you would with a normal fly rod you have your backing and then it goes into a section called running line which is like for a lot of folks it's just monofilament like you'd use trout fishing only you put on like 30 pound uh, monofilament rather than like, you know, six pound monofilament for trout. Um, and then it goes into a head called a shooting head and a Scandinavian shooting head is anywhere from 40 feet long to 70 feet long and requires a lot of, uh, space behind you to make a back cast. Okay. And then it shoots forward. And essentially what it does is the line stays on the water and essentially forms like a slingshot. Lines gripping the water. The there's a loop that goes behind you. That's why you would need all that area behind you to back cast to form that loop, so trees don't tangle it. And then it shoots way out, and you can shoot those lines a hundred feet. So, um, so then, you're so you're limited. This this kind of fishing is limited to rivers. First of all, where you've got clearance behind you right? Not a ton of trees and also big water in front of you. You're not fishing little creeks. Yes. So yes and no. Okay. You, they, it's evolved. There's been in the last 10 years, there's been more evolution with spay casting than ever. Hmm. So they now have it. So you could buy a spay casting line for a single handed rod. But what's also cool is when this method came over to the United States, because so many of our rivers in Washington have these huge trees with branches overhanging. They said, these long Scandinavian lines don't work. We're going to make something that's shorter and stockier. Hence we have Skagit lines that are right around like 20 feet long. And so you need almost no back casting space to shoot these lines out. Hmm. And what's really cool about them is because they're short and stocky, you can put a big heavy sink tip on the end of it before it goes to your fly. So when you're fishing for like winter run steelhead, that sink tip helps get that fly to the very bottom of the river where the fish are. Hmm. Uh, whereas with the Scandinavian lines, you can't, the, the physics don't allow for a heavy sink tip to sink through the water column quickly. So, um, 
what the Scandinavian lines allow you to do really nicely is fish on top of the water. And steelhead will come up and take a dry fly, which is pretty cool. I have yet to do it. It's <laughs> on my list. I've got four days on the Grand Ron River coming up at the end of September. And my one goal is to swing a fly, swing a steelhead on a dry fly. Um, but it's you, just say, different you, say, for, you say swing a steelhead. Yeah. What's that? What's that lingo mean? So does that mean Brad to catch fit, one or to fish for it, one? It's it's a yeah. It's to catch one using a spay rod. And okay. so when Brad Pitt was like river runs through it, everyone yeah. thinks of that with fly fishing. And he he casts the bug upstream and he drifts it down so the bug looks natural. Yeah. Spay uh, when you're fishing with two hundred rods, it's the exact opposite. You cast downstream at about a forty five degree angle. Huh. as much tension on as possible and the river kind of rips the line down river to put huh. it in front of a fish what it what it means though is when a fish takes that fly you feel it because there's all that tension on the okay. line and what's really cool and it took me a long time to learn this i lost so many fish uh, because of this steelhead will come up and mouth a fly like put it in their mouth and chew it before they take it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you want to set, you want to set the hook. That's the worst thing you can do. You have to hold it. And at times your whole rod will be like shaking because there's a fish just mouthing it. Uh But the way the, the fly works in the water and these rods work is that they'll then turn and go downstream and so they almost always hook themselves right in the corner of the mouth. So they kind of turn and start swimming away with this fly bug in their mouth. Yeah, but without, they hook themselves. Like, without biting down onto the hook. They, so what they'll do is they'll finally decide, okay, I want to eat this. They'll bite down, turn, and go downstream, and that's when they hook themselves. Dang. And so, so you, you, I mean, yeah. I'm, just trying to ima- I'm just trying to visualize this, and I mean, you're, you already start with your cast downstream from where you are, then this fish, then it's floating with the current, then the yep. fish might even take it a little further down. So how much line do you have out when you have to start reeling this fish in? <laughs> I'm a shitty caster, so not much. Okay. Um, other guys <laughs> who um, who can do it, I mean, some guys could be 100, 150 feet um, wow. by the time all is said and done. And is it, does, if I were to look at the reel on one of those rods, does it look like a fly reel? Like a yeah that I know, but maybe bigger. Yep, they're just bigger. And what okay. what I think is really cool is there's there's like a whole uh, kind of niche where folks are buying vintage reels. Mm. So like those old Hardy reels over from England, um, man, some of those pre World War II Hardy reels um, that are you know upwards of a hundred years old now go for thousands of dollars. Wow, and and they they still work just perfectly let me let me ask you a question and this shows my ignorance about fly fishing but how come on the reel the 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 handle that you crank the crank is so small because of course i'm like a bait caster kind of guy you know and fish fish for bass using an an open bale reel um and you know it's all about the crank and yeah you you know getting uh you know, getting some torque on that crank to pull in a big fish or whatever. But I see those flies and I'm like, these, it's like for babies. <laughs> it's like for little tiny hands. I have no idea to be oh. honest with you. I've never even thought of it. 
Um, they could be bigger, like, couldn't they? Or would they get in the way or something? No, they definitely could be. I mean, I, I mean, I know a lot of the guys with the um, the older reels. Like you had to uh, your drag system was your hand. Uh huh. You'd put it up against there, and and so you didn't want that handle smacking. Your well, hand. I think there's a scene in a river runs through it where Brad Pitt, he's got a fish just take and he, yep. you see him like he uses the, the palm of his hand as kind of a break on that reel to slow yep. down the, the fish, you know? Yeah. Yeah, huh. exactly. Okay. So. so then, but you didn't just, you didn't just fall in love with this type of fishing. Now you're like own a rod company and you hand make these, Two-handed rods. Yeah. So, um, I you know, I've made rods on and off for a long time. But in the midst of COVID, my daughter asked about a two-handed spay rod for herself. Because it used to these used to be big rods that you'd use for steelhead, salmon, big fish. But they've become popular to use a trout. You just, everything gets smaller. Okay. And and so um, I built her a two-handed rod for herself to use for our local trout rivers here. And um, that led to another one. Someone asked me to build a rod. And then... How old was your daughter at the time you built that for her? Oh, shoot. Um, seven. She's eight now. I mean, this, oh, okay. is, um, this is all happening in 2020. That's awesome. I, I, She's the, fishing with you, man. That's awesome. Oh, I, I, lo- I mean, I'm, I'm very lucky to have kids who fish who still want to fish with me and um and i've built them all rods i think i did it for like their first christmas they all got a rod that i built for them um but anyways it, it would just as i started to do it more and then started getting into bamboo i just thought well there's not a whole lot of folks who make two-handed bamboo rods around here i should try and fill that uh market need not not that two-handed bamboo rods are a huge market but i'm enjoying it enough uh a lot of the bamboo rod makers are older guys and not a lot of folks my age doing it they're fun to fish um they're incredible tools they're tough as all get out i mean i think bamboo is a tougher stronger material than graphite Um, really yeah and what really appeals to me about bamboo is i can design my own tapers so the the taper is, you know, the rod at one end is say a half an inch thick. And and then at the tip is, you know, like seven thousandths of an inch thick. And so the space between is how do they get from that half inch to the thousandths of an inch? And so I can design on bamboo really easily the thickness of each five inches. How do you inches. do that? Be- so, yeah. yeah. So on, for the bamboo, the way that they, the way you make them is you set the taper at every five inches. And so as you're planing the bamboo down to triangulate it, you can set the depth of, or the thickness of each strip. Right. And so, um, I can take tapers that I know or design my own tapers. And as I set the taper on the plane, um, that determines the thickness of the bamboo rod when it gets glued up. Um, with graphite rods and fiberglass rods, they go through a process of they get rolled onto a mandrel and baked in an oven. And so that equipment is exceedingly expensive. Like it's buying a house expensive. And so oh, wow. 
I will not be doing that as, you know, anytime soon. I get my, uh, I, fiberglass is the other rod I make a lot of because fiberglass is just an absolute blast. Mm. Um, I don't do a lot of graphite. I'm not opposed to it. I just, I like some of the older style of rods. Um, okay. Materials. This is so fascinating. I'm looking at your website and I'm, it's going to yeah. be in the show notes for people to look at. And you don't have a ton of pictures on your website, but um, at least that I can see, but um, it's beautiful. It's They're absolutely beautiful. Thanks. And they come apart into th- four pieces once they're done. So, uh, but there's the graphite, been many, many more pieces of bamboo every five inches put together to get there. Is, am I hearing yeah, that so, right? Yeah. So graphite and fiberglass come into uh, four, usually sections of four. So like a four okay. piece rod. The bamboo runs, depending on length, will either be two pieces or three pieces. Dang. I, I'm sitting here right next to a um, a rod I have um, with a ferrule connection point being cooked on there right now. Um, but it is six pieces of bamboo that are, is bound and glued together. Okay. And then each of those, so that makes the blank and then it'll be two to three, uh, blanks per rod that get, um, so this is not the kind of rod you can stick in the back of your sedan. Like you need to put it on the roof of your car or something like that. I mean, no, if it's just two pieces, how long is each of oh. those pieces is what I'm saying. Uh, let's see. Uh, each is right around three and a half feet. That's now, long. I can make them shorter. I can make them, you know, I can make a two piece or a five piece bamboo. It's more difficult to do that because in the, the bamboo combs, um, you know, they have, if you look at bamboo, you have the main stem and then you have nodes that go all the way around the bamboo. Right. Okay. Nodes and, and, are and let me, but, but wait, is yeah. it also, isn't bamboo hollow in the middle then? It, it is. So what you're doing is you're taking one of those round pieces of bamboo uh-huh. and you're splitting it in half and splitting oh. it in half. And so it goes from this round piece, this round tube into strips. And then you take these strips and you plane them into, if it's a six-sided rod, a 61.5 degree angle triangle. And you need six pieces that form three sets. If it's a five-sided rod, well, it's 72 degrees. If it's a four-sided okay. rod, it's 90 degrees. You know, um, And you can – all these are – bamboo has endless possibilities because of this. Huh. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, so for a lot of uh, the spay rods I, I build, it's 18 strips of bamboo that need to be planed, glued, um, varnished there's they go through a process of being tempered both by an open flame and in a in an oven um, and that's what makes them so strong um, and then you know then you have to put the cork together to make the grips you have to turn uh, reel seat inserts um, where you would put your reels and then you apply mm-hmm. all the other components mm-hmm. um, rod guides and, and that sort of thing so, wow. I mean, bamboo rods, each rod probably takes on average like 60 to 80 hours to make. Holy smokes, dude. Yeah. And, and where, where do you get your bamboo? So there is a guy, um, oh, David Seffron, I'm mispronouncing his name, out of Montana, who goes to China and sources every stock of bamboo before it's sent back here. Cause all the, so there's like thousands of different kinds of bamboo. Hmm. Um, however, 
the the bamboo that's best for rod making is uh, Tolkien bamboo, which comes from a specific region in China. Wow. And and so even then, when you look at the the combs of bamboo, I mean, you want kind of the best of those combs because you want. It's hard to make something straight when it starts crooked. So the right. straighter it can begin with, um, you don't want deep bug bites. All these things that can be. Uh, taken care of during the building process. Um, you just want to make sure you're starting with something good blemishes. That stuff can all be taken care of. That's okay. easy. A deep bug bite could ruin a strip. Wow. So, so even after you, you know, let's say you take a comb of bamboo and you crack it into, say you get 12 or 18 strips. You might only be able to use six hmm. because of wow. other things that just, I mean, you could use the other six yeah. to make something for yourself, but you don't want to give it to a customer if it's not right, right. Um, good quality. It's fascinating, man. So you've got like a, a bamboo middleman in Montana. Yeah, I get the bamboo from him. What's really so what what's been really cool about this whole kind of process is um, I source some of my hardware from this guy named Mike McCoy, who uh, who's down in Battleground. Washington. My grandfather was in Woodland. Well, Mike knew my grandfather way back mm. in the day. Um, mm. And like the fiberglass blanks I use, I, I, I use North Fork Composites and they're based out of Woodland, Washington. It's a Gary Loomis company. And um, Gary sold G. Loomis to Shimano when he had his cancer scare and then survived. Well, Gary knew my grandfather too. And throughout this whole process, I found myself reconnecting with parts of my past that I either didn't know was there or, or have been, I haven't thought about in decades. Hmm. So that's been kind of cool too. So that's awesome. Well, that's a good segue to, um, an article you wrote in 2016. And I think that's can, uh, maybe take us home here back when yeah. you were still a, a full-time lead pastor. <laughs> but you write yeah. about you write about four ways that steelhead fishing kind of has lessons for the church and we can expand that out, maybe not even just for the church but li- for lessons for life. Yeah. And I'll just throw each of these four at you and would love or five, sorry there's five. But to get to um in the, in the last few years, you know, going through COVID, leaving ministry, going full, you know, making rod, making your full, your full-time gig and then ministry, your side hustle. Yeah. Um, I just wonder where you're at, um, on these. So the first one is curiosity is motivating. Yeah. Uh, I'd still hold to that. Um, I, I think, you know, one of the things that COVID in particular has has taught us is that it's you've got to love the process more than the end result. And I and I think like, even theologically, I was talking to my wife last night and um, I was telling her about some stuff going on. And and I, I said to her, um, I'm just I don't think I need to deal with this right now. And I think it's because I finally learned that that lesson that, that there's something to be said 
in being curious and watching something play out versus needing to constantly react to something. And if you're okay being in that spot of being curious and just watching and being w- w- ready to receive whatever is going to happen, it, it, it's, uh, makes life a lot easier to live. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. The second one is rhythms are important. And yeah. how did you learn that from fishing? Oh my God. So every, I mean, fishing is a rhythmic thing, right? So it's like when you swing a fly, you can control the speed and you can of the fly itself and you can control your speed of say working through a run, you know, so you cast, you step, you let it sink. It, it goes into its pattern. If you are erratic in when you step or at one point your fly is moving really fast, the next time it's moving really slow if you're not doing it systematically and with a rhythm, you will scare fish off, mm. right? But if you are able to find your rhythm and work that run, if there's a fish, chances are you're going to be able to nab it okay. um, and at least hook into it. So, The third one you write is that uh, so are your surroundings. Surroundings are also important in, in fishing and in the spiritual life. Yeah. Um yeah, and I—I I mean, I think that I think of my kids, yeah, and where where they're at. Like, um, you write, you write. Yeah. Steelheaders are some of the most attentive people on the planet. And what yeah. is it about steelhead fishing that makes you that requires you to be so attentive to your surroundings? Oh, well, steelhead. So trout fishing, uh, you know, trout can hold up in one area all summer because there's a consistent food source. Mm-hmm. Steelhead are in there to spawn. And so they'll be at one spot one day, but they won't be there the next because they're constantly on the move. Mm-hmm. And um, especially winter run fish, they don't eat as often. Summer run fish ha- turn a little bit trouty by the time that they spawn. They all spawn at the same time. They just enter the river at different points. Um, but water clarity, water color, water speed, mm-hmm. all these things play into fly choice, right? And then, it, 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 you know, temperature will play into where you want your fly to sit in the column. And, and so you have to know, you know, all these things. Yeah. I mean, you're a predator when you're fly fishing. Lenny Walker talks about the successful fisherman is a predator because he's paying attention to all the things that would tell him where that fish is. It's no different. And, and it, to me, it's no different than when I'm mule hunting, mule deer hunting. Like it's all the same, right? Mm -hmm. Cause, cause you're, you're thinking about what directions the wind is coming. Um, if it's morning or afternoon, are you, gonna, are you, are you going to skyline, right? You're thinking through like, what are their patterns? How can I get one step ahead of them? It's a chess match. Yeah. And, um, I think with fish, at least with like deer, there, there's generally a rhythm that they stay in for a season. Steelhead, it might be for a day. It might be for a minute. It might change with the next incoming tide if you're closer to the ocean. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, re- you really have to be vigilant. Yeah, I, I've said this many times on this podcast, but it's one of the things I realized as I kind of walked out of the church and into the woods that I loved about hunting is it demands total concentration, total focus. And there's not yeah. many things in life that do. Like yeah. y- you can sit in a church staff meeting and multitask and be like surreptitiously checking your email while somebody's giving a report on the offering last Sunday or whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. But man, um, when you're walking through a field with a firearm and dogs and 
badger holes and other guys with firearms and whatever, you got to be on your toes. And I, I would think it's the same if you're working a river for steelhead. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah, it's, it's the exact same. I think I'm grateful that, um, that you're, you know, most people out, out there don't, aren't actively with a firearm, you know, if you trip or something in, in a river and, and those sorts of things, but yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, I think it's the same thing. And I think, um, like even, so the first time I fished the Olympic peninsula, my buddy Joe sent me some spots to go and fish cause I was meeting up with him later. And, um, man, I remember walking in on this one spot on the hoe, uh, which is one of the major rivers out of forks. And I walked in and I fished it. And on my way back out, when I walked back out, there was cougar tracks on top of my <laughs> wading boots oh, baby. on the way back out. And it was like, Oh my goodness. Yeah, that's, <laughs> you got to pay attention. You got to know what's life. around you. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Number four is be ready to receive. And, and you write, steelheaders know what it means to live in a posture of receptivity. Yeah. Um, they're, like you just said, they're always on the move. Yep. And you got to fish. I, I think every time you throw a cast out, especially when you're swinging flies, you got to expect that you're going to get something. If you if you don't think you're going to get it, you're not going to pay attention. You're going to get lazy. You're going to pull the fly out of the water before it finishes swinging. And a lot of times, it's like at that last eleventh hour that that's when they hit. Interesting. So. And then the last one, number five, that is such a great life lesson for all of us is gratitude is essential. Um, because I'm guessing you're saying that because. Uh, it's not super easy to catch a steelhead. I'm guessing. No, and and it's getting harder. We've got our our fish issues out here. Yeah. Um, and there there's complicated politics and history behind it all, but it just means that uh, every time you do get one, it's that much more special. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That's awesome. Well. Yeah. So you got a big fishing trip in September. But yeah, you were saying earlier that. that they don't they don't they spawn in the late winter early spring, or yep, are there they, kind of two windows where you fish for steelhead? So um, we're lucky enough in Washington that if you, it's possible to catch steelhead twelve months of the year. Oh dang! Um, they come generally in two different groups. Winter run fish enter the river sometime between Thanksgiving and when they spawn in April. Okay. Summer run fish enter the river. Uh, in June and then spawn in April. And oh, um, like, and so they stay. Yeah. They stay through the whole winter. Yeah. The summer run fish. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And, and it just makes for, I mean, it's kind of cool. Are they like, transitioning from salt water to fresh water? Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. so how many I mean, species what, do that? So I was just, there's a great podcast called the river rambler. And they just had someone on, and this guy, same, a lot of the same way that you do things of just telling stories. And he had someone on that said, one of their fish biologists said that there was something like a thousand different kinds of steelhead. Because even like you go down further south, like on the Rogue River in Oregon or um, on the American River out of Sacramento, um, they have half pounders. And these are fish that rainbow trout who go to the ocean and come back before they're sexually mature. And then they go back to the ocean a second time and then they come back and spawn. 
and people scientists think that there was some sort of you know uh, atmospheric pressure that triggered a group of steelhead to come back in early and you know so there's all these theories wow. about it. so but there's all these different types but what is what makes it so neat is you could catch a uh, steelhead in Washington State and it still has sea lights on it because it's you know you're catching with, within a mile of the ocean or you could catch one in eastern Washington where I'll be on the Grand Ron and its cheeks are bright red because it's made that full transition back to trout only rather than being, you know, 15, 16 inches. Now it's 24, 25 inches. And And this is the reason, I mean, this is a a topic for another day, but this is the reason there's a lot of talk right now about taking out dams, right? (laughs) Yes. Because some steelhead who I, I saw somebody, um, recently, talking about she she was pad, she she was guiding in a river and said the steelhead if they could they would swim 900 miles inland oh. if there weren't dams stopping them i mean th- there were steelhead that used to go into idaho and parts of montana that's where she was she was yeah she was in idaho yeah. and that's what she was saying the steelhead yeah. would come this far if there if the dams weren't keeping them from it yep that's and crazy. and there and there i mean and, and it's so nuanced right because like my father-in-law, dryland wheat farmer, and so the dams have opened up markets for them. Yeah, that of course, weren't possible. On the other hand, dams increase water temperature. When water temperature goes up, certain bug species die. When certain bug species die, there's not food for the fish. And then you 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 think about uh, the Native Americans, and we have dams that have completely covered some of their ceremonial sites. I think of Slilo Falls. Um, you think about the politics behind orca whales and sea lions. My grandpa told me stories that most people find terrifying about how they used to deal with sea lions before World War II. Wow. Um, and, but on the other hand, we have sea lions that go all the way up to Bonneville Dam or they go all the way down into Oregon City. And it's like, that's not their natural habitat. And they're just, they're, they're eating on fish. And so right. there's so many different groups involved in it too. Um, it's a real, it's a hot button issue. Well, we'll have to talk about it again. Maybe um, sometime when I'm out in Bend, Oregon, with my brother <laughs> duck hunting, I can swing up there and Dude, I would cast I would love a two handed rod with you. That would be so Dude, yes. fun. If well, anytime you're up, dude, you're always you're always welcome, and Thanks. I would love to do that. That'd be that'd be great. Well, I hope um, if anyone's intrigued, who's listening, that they'll check out your website and uh, yeah. Who knows? Maybe put in an order for a, a rod from you. I would I would love that. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, thanks for coming on. And I appreciate uh, you reaching out a few years ago and glad we've kept in touch. Yeah, I am too. I, uh, I, I'm, I'm grateful uh, for your friendship. And it's thanks. been fun to get to know you uh, at a distance and stuff. <laughs> <laughs>